You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Amen. You can be seated. Merry Christmas, everybody. I'll say Merry Christmas because, as Ed mentioned, we are still in the season of Christmas, or Christmas Tide, as we call it. And in this season, we focus on what it means for us now that Jesus came all long ago, back then, even as we're waiting for him to come again. My name is Elizabeth Hayes. I am the pastor of Parish Life and Mission here at Third, and I'm excited to be worshiping you during this Christmas season. So let me say a prayer for us, and then I'll read our scripture for today. Let's pray. Gracious God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you have to say to us today. Amen. Our scripture today is from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, through chapter 62, verse 5. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations." For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted, or name your land desolate, but you will be named, my delight is in her, and your land will be named married. For the Lord will take delight in you and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I want to know who, along with me, has been watching those cheesy holiday movies this December. I need a show of hands. In the first service, the first person to shoot their hand up was a 65-year-old man. I just would like for everyone to know that. (laughs) So here's the thing. You know what I'm talking about. They used to only be made by Hallmark. Now every streaming service has gotten in on the game, right? And they are, the reason why most people hate them is actually the reason why I like them, and that is because they are ridiculously predictable. The script, it goes like this every single time, right? There is a self-centered, big city girl who's very focused on her career, and she is set to inherit the family business. Dad sends her to a small town on a very important and character-building mission, And in said small town, city girl meets small town guy, someone who would have never come across her radar before, and at first they hate each other. But then city girl changes. 
Small Town teaches her about the important things in life and the real meaning of Christmas. She returns to the big city and her dad can hardly recognize her because she's totally transformed. And of course, she inherits the family business and gets married to big city, to small town guy, and they live happily ever after, usually very wealthy. (laughs) It is so cheesy, so predictable, and they're probably all written by AI these days, honestly. But at the heart of all of these holiday movies is a total transformation. And I find that interesting. Why is it that Hallmark doesn't make movies about just getting everything that you want for Christmas? or about working so hard and finally making partner at the law firm? Why is it that all of these holiday movies have at their heart, at their center, this radical transformation? Why is that sort of radical transformation so much a part of our understanding of Christmas that it pervades even these secular holiday movies? Well, there might be a very capitalistic reason or answer to that question, but... I would like to contend that maybe at least a little bit, it is because the hope of transformation is at the very heart of the Christmas story. And our, our passage today is a true Christmas story in that sense. It is all about a radical transformation and an unexpected wedding. If our Isaiah text were a movie, the opening scenes would look something like this. A faithful husband comes home to find his wife with another man. And it isn't the first time that it's happened. And so after many warnings, he kicks her out of the house. She finds herself homeless, vulnerable, scared, and also ashamed because she knows that she brought this situation on herself. Isaiah's prophecy speaks to the people of God when they are in a place like this. They had been conquered and violated, decimated, thrown out of their homes and their homeland. And there they were, oppressed under the rule of foreign powers, stripped of their freedoms and their dignity, wondering who they were. And even worse, they knew that the reason for their defeat was because of their own astonishing sin, their own betrayal of God. God had warned them time after time that this is exactly what would happen if they continued to betray him. And so it's no wonder that the Israelites understood their desolation as a sign that they had been forsaken by God. They were so desolate, so deserted, that it might as well have been their name. But unlike those predictable Hallmark movies, this script includes an astonishing surprise. Because in verse 10, we see someone being dressed in the type of attire that only belongs at a wedding. And there's this stirring sense of joy and anticipation. We know that something big is about to happen, something really good. And then in verse three, against all odds, it becomes apparent that Zion is the one to be married. Zion, the people of God, the very ones who were deserted and forsaken, who thought that God must be repulsed by them because of their sin against him. They're told that God actually wants to marry them. So how can Zion go from being muckridden to magnificent? How can this radical transformation be achieved? 
Well, it is because of the servant mentioned at the beginning of chapter 61, the Messiah. The father had sought someone to accomplish his big rescue mission, and in the end, it was the Messiah himself who takes his very own wedding clothes, his own robe of righteousness, and gives it to the very ones who had betrayed him. Martin Luther calls this the joyous exchange. The Messiah who was clothed in the robes of righteousness by the Father himself, in verse 10, he takes off those robes and trades them in for a garment of condemnation on the cross. He takes our rags and replaced them with the beautiful garments of a royal wedding, with the garments of salvation, they're called. And just like in a marriage today, The marriage that Isaiah depicts here comes with a name change. So we are going to look at this name that Jesus has bestowed upon us, has gained for us. We're we're going to talk about it in three different ways. We're going to talk about it as a completely new name, as a secret name, and as a transforming name. So first, a new name. You know, today... Uh, children are given names for any number of reasons. It might be, they might be named after someone special to the parents. They might be given a name that just sounds really good with their last name or that matches the name of their siblings or any number of reasons. But names in the ancient Hebrew imagination were inextricably linked to identity. A person's name was their identity and their identity was embodied in their name. Think about Jacob. He was named the deceiver because he came out of the womb grabbing his twin brother Esau's heel as if he was trying to pull his brother back in so that he could beat him out of the womb. So he was named the deceiver, Jacob, and that name became his identity. It was who he was. It was what he did. He lived into that name. But there's also a rich and really beautiful tradition in scripture of God changing a person's name as redemption redefines them. And often that name change is prophetic. It, It declares something to be that is not yet. So think about, for example, Abraham. First, his name was Abram, and then he was, his name was changed to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. He was given that name before he had a single child. Jacob, as we just mentioned, his name meant the deceiver. He was renamed Israel, the one for whom God fought. That's one way to translate the name Israel. He was given that name while he was still fighting all his own battles. And then there's Simon, who was renamed Peter, which means the steady rock. He was given that name even while his emotions were still getting the best of him day in and day out. And so Israel, after the exile, was named forgotten, deserted, trampled, desolate. It was who they were. But in in our reading today, we see that God comes to his broken people, his forsaken people, his people who are overwhelmed by the failings of their sin, his people who can see nothing but their disgrace and ruin in their own stories. And he says, I'm giving you a new name. You're no longer forsaken. I love you. And so now your name is, my delight is in you. You're no longer desolate. I love you. And so now your name is married, the one who will belong to me forever. 
The new name that God gives us reflects our new redeemed identity. And it's an identity that has been formally declared upon us, like when a pastor declares a bride and a groom married. It's official, it's done. Well, the Apostle Paul picks up on this radical change in identity in his letter to the Galatians, and he uses a different kind of imagery. So Isaiah uses the image of a wedding, a marriage, but Paul picks up a different kind of identity-shifting and name-changing legal ceremony, that of an adoption. He says this, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you're his child, God has also made you an heir. And then again, Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, uh, he uses an even different image of new creation. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And so even though we may not always feel like it or act like it, God has declared that your most profound identity as the new redeemed people is no longer forsaken or abandoned or left out in the cold. Your new identity, your essence, is now that of a beautiful bride. It's the one who's been brought near, the one who permanently belongs, the member of a new family, the delightful one. God doesn't just pick us up and dust us off and give us a little shine. We're not merely patched up and improved versions of our former selves. It's not like if you were to really stick with your New Year's resolution and lose a little bit of weight, but that weight could just as easily come back on. It's not like that. In Christ, your identity is now fundamentally different, fundamentally transformed. No longer a slave, now you're a child. You're no longer your old self, you're now a new creation. So the first thing that we note about this name that Jesus gives us is that it is a totally new name that matches a totally new identity that's been achieved for us by Jesus Christ. Second, this is a secret name. This marriage isn't some kind of empty ceremony that only has legal significance. It's not just a simple transaction. No, the union that Isaiah describes is full of emptiness and, not emptiness, intimacy and affection and joy. You know, I know that there are people um, here today who have been in or are currently in a really difficult marriage. And so it may be a little painful or difficult for you to hear that God chooses this image to describe his relationship with us. But you know, what makes a marriage have the potential to be so painful is the very same thing that gives it the potential to be so beautiful. And that is that a marriage is very intimate. And so it's no wonder that God chooses this image as the image to describe his relationship with us, one of the images that he uses to describe his relationship with us. 
Because to marry is one of the most intimate moves that you can make towards another person. Imagine um, a marriage in a very traditional culture, for example, a culture in which the bride and the groom can't be alone together, or maybe in some cases can't even see each other before the wedding day. Now imagine the intimacy of the moment when the groom lifts up the veil and sees his bride's face for the first time, knowing that this woman is now a part of his family and potentially the mother of his future children. This is a moment that is shared only between that bride and the groom, and the secretness of it, the hiddenness of it, is part of what makes it so intimate, so special. So Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, it picks up on this intimacy, the intimacy of this naming, when it refers back to Isaiah's prophecy here. And it says that the new name that we're given by God is a secret. It's a secret name that's known only to the giver and the receiver. Well, some of you know my husband, Will. Um, He is the king of nicknames. (laughs) Some of you here are the recipients of his nicknames. His sister... Uh, Allie Page is here. Allie Page is known as Goose. And uh, Alex Bruce, some of you guys know Alex Bruce. Alex is Ranter. And Alex and his wife Janice collectively are Rantis, for example. So for Will, to give a nickname is a sign of belovedness. It's something that's just between you and him. It communicates something about who he is to you, the way he knows you, and it usually also involves like a story or a funny inside joke. It's something that's only known to the giver and to the receiver. Who doesn't long to be known in that way? To be known in that personal, deep, special way? Well, that's the way that God knows us. And that deep personal knowledge of us is what this name reflects. It's a name that only the one who knows you most intimately can give you. And it matches the depth of the affection and the bond that he has with you. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, friends. We celebrate that Jesus didn't stand far off. He's not some celebrity that we can only access through their Instagram feed, or even like a celebrity pastor who we only access through the sermons that we listen to on a podcast. That is not who Jesus is. He has moved towards us in this deeply intimate way and united himself to us. So we've said that this new name that we've received is a declaration of this new identity. We have been dressed in the robes of righteousness. The wedding ceremony has taken place. It is official. We've also said that this secret name is a reflection of our intimate and restored relationship with God. This isn't just some empty ceremony. The name that God gives us reflects his deepest knowledge of us and the joy that comes from our union with him. But this name that God gives us is even more powerful than that. This is a transforming name. This name not only reflects or declares a new identity, it also has the power to create that identity, to create a new reality. You know, 
As Ed mentioned, next week I'm being ordained as a pastor, and this has been a long journey for me. Um, it's the culmination of something that I've been working towards for a long time. And at that service, I'll be asked some questions, I'll take some vows, and then at the end of it all, a representative of the presbytery will say, Elizabeth Hayes, you are now ordained as an eco-pastor. And that'll be it. <laughs> I'll be a pastor. And you know, there will be nothing magical about those words. The fact that I am declared to be a pastor does not somehow make me pastoral, right? It's true, I am a pastor, but it does nothing to create anything in me. But this new name does have the power not only to declare that you are God's delight, but to make you delightful. It's like the beautiful line of that old hymn, I don't know if you all know it, called My Song is Love Unknown. The line says, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. God's naming of us out of his love, it creates something in us. And that's because Jesus Christ is the very one who spoke creation into being. And he's the one who speaks this new creation, this redeemed identity into being in your life and mine. If you're a gardener, then you may have noticed that the daffodils are starting to pop up around town. And to me, every year, seeing those first little shoots of green, even though it'll be a while before they bloom, seeing those shoots of green in the dead of winter, knowing that we still have months of cold weather ahead of us, it is a reminder to me that nothing can stop the spring from coming. It's inevitable, it's already started, in fact. And in verse 11, we see that Isaiah draws upon the same metaphor. He says that just like seeds that are buried deep underneath the ground, underneath the earth, they are at work germinating and growing and preparing to spring forth in new life. So too is the work, the transforming work of God's new name on your life. And so you may think with longing about the ways that you'd like to see new creation come into bloom in your life. And the promise of this new name given to you by Jesus is that because Jesus has spoken new creation over you, one day you will become a new Garden of Eden. It's just as inevitable as the coming of spring. So as we head into a new year, I want to offer up a practice for you. I know that New Year's resolutions can be um, contentious for some people. I will say that for me, New Year's resolutions often stem from my own shame and only create more of it. Um, so if you set a New Year's resolution this year, I'd like to propose that you don't make it one of self-determination to finally get yourself in better shape, to finally start that diet, to finally do that thing that you've been dreading and putting off but that instead you set an intention and turn that intention into prayer, that you would learn to view yourself and those around you, and even the church, as one whose new name is hidden with Christ. The one whom Jesus loved so much that he wanted to get her all dressed up and marry her. The one whose complete and utter transformation is inevitable as spring. 
I wonder what it would change, for example, in the way that you respond to your mother or your roommate or your child or your spouse or your coworker when they disappoint you again this week, because we do still have one more week of winter break, that instead of naming them, won't ever change or always out to get me, you remember that God has named that person my delight. Or what about the next time that you are just utterly exasperated at the church and the people in it because sometimes it can just be so frustrating? What if instead of naming the church stuck in the past and a bunch of old curmudgeons, what if you remember that God has named her my beloved? And what about yourself? When you're tempted to name yourself can't ever get it right or belongs to nobody, what would change if you remember that God has named you mine? Well, the heart of Christmas is really simple. God came near to us to give us a new name. God no longer identifies us predominantly by our sin, but by his grace. He no longer sees us as the failing sinners that we oftentimes are, but as his beloved, the redeemed ones. We are his delight. That's the name that he's given us. And so it's the only name that really matters. Amen, let's pray. Jesus, you have come to us, the people who have over and over again betrayed you. And you've given us a new name. You don't call us betrayer. You call us your delight. And God, we know that there's nothing that we can do to take away the reality of this new identity, and yet we long for this new creation to come forth in our life. And so we pray that you would be at work uh, creating the reality of that name in our lives. We pray that you'd be at work teaching us to see others in the way that you have named them, have declared them, and are transforming them to become. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.